Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show with me, your host, Adam Brandon. And joining me today here on the World Football Index is Simon Edwards, first of all, in Medellin. How are you, Simon? Yeah, very good, thanks. Very good. We had a game this weekend, my team uh, got the 2-0 win. I ended up having to play as a, as a target man number nine, which was far too physical for my liking. I got battered a bit, so I'm feeling a bit sore. Did set up a goal, bit of an Ian Dowie performance up there, no nonsense, doing some doing some running. So, bit sore, but but good and happy that we got the win, and yeah, all is good in Colombia. Well, my match got cancelled tonight, so I'm a, I'm sulking a little bit about that. And also joining us tonight is Austin, who is usually in the United States, but this time he's on somewhat of a dream trip in Brazil, and um, you're based in Sao Paulo tonight, right, Austin? I am. I am. It's it's great to do a show with you guys where we're all on the same continent for once. And it's the continent that we talk about. So that's great. I'm also pleased that it took Simon all of five seconds to get into talking about his team because, of course, it did because that's just Simon for you. So good night all around. Yeah, I assume that's why everyone's listening. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They certainly tune in for the updates on AFC and Exactly. AFC Envigado update title of the podcast right there that's all they want that's all they want while we're looking at maybe signing adam um we could do with another striker. oh yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Mu- I'm mulling over the offer at the moment yeah. to, yeah. to, i can match it's, the highest paid player in our team 25 percent annual wage wise i'll give you five thousand uh, pesos per goal as well so you can't say fairer than that it's a very attractive package but i, I need i need a few days to think about it i'll get back to you anyway back to the pod in hand and first, we come to Austin. So, Austin, you're you're in Brazil for two weeks, and you're somehow managing to fit in eight football matches in that time. I'm going to visit uh, what five or six different stadiums, I think, as well. Maybe you can just give us a rundown of your experiences so far, a highlight, maybe a worst moment as well, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, as you said, it is a bit of a dream trip for me been planning it out for a couple months and I had the dates. I know that this is a busy time in the football calendar in Brazil, but I got incredibly fortunate to have that many matches. Uh, it helps to be in a city like Sao Paulo where there's, you know, the three big teams and then also Santos within driving distance. So that helps make it that there are a lot of matches to go to. It helps that this is just a busy time in the Brazilian football calendar. It helps that they, it's pretty much always a busy time in that there's matches on the weekend and at midweek. And it's nice in Sao Paulo, uh, the three big teams here, Corinthians, Palmeiras, and Sao Paulo, and then Santos, when they play at the Pacaembu in Sao Paulo, which they do for a number of matches, not more than half, but certainly a decent enough that if you are a Sao Paulo-based Santos fan, you get to see your club a lot. Those teams can't play in Sao Paulo on the same day. It divides the resources of the police here. Sao Paulo is obviously a, a massive city regardless. And so to try to police two football matches and all that comes with that in the same day, it's just too much. And so that helps make it so that there are a lot of matches to go to when you, I wouldn't characterize myself as a neutral, obviously being a Palmeiras fan, but willing to go to all of these stadiums. It really helps to have those matches be on the different days and it works out. Uh, yeah, you're right. Six stadiums for me in my time. Uh, I've been to all the stadiums that I'll go to already. I've still got two more Palmetus matches to come, which I'm obviously incredibly pleased about uh, that I'll get to see my own team three times in two weeks. 
everything that needed to happen for that to happen happened. So I'm really, really thankful for that. Uh, I saw Santos at the Pac Ambu, uh, a really old, fun municipal stadium. Uh, it feels like it's, it's straight out of the old days of football. A really, really cool place to see a match. I was really happy about getting the opportunity to see that. I saw Sao Paulo at the Modem B, uh, a very, very interesting stadium. Uh, the stands are really far away from the pitch. It's a it's a big kind of circular stadium, but you're not right on the pitch, but it's massive. Uh, when it's full, I think it's an awesome place to see a match. It was not full for the match that I got. Uh, a little under 20,000 were there in a 60,000-ish seat stadium. It was still a fun atmosphere. The weather was was perfect, everything that I had hoped for, so I still had a great time. Saw Palmetas at the Allianz Parky, always going to be an incredible experience for me. Um, Palmetas won, which made it even better. Palmetas now, for the record, 4-0 and without conceding a goal in the four matches that I've seen them play. So, you know, for what it's worth, I might be the good luck charm. Corinthians at the Arena Corinthians, uh, another really nice stadium. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to go with uh, the guy who runs the Corinthians English Twitter account. If you're a fan of Brazilian football, that's a must-follow account. Uh, great stuff on on co- the team Corinthians in English. Live tweets of matches, news, etc. Great guy. Um, he took me in with the Corinthians Ultras, uh, an experience that I'll talk about in a little bit that was uh, different for me. Um, but I'm glad that I did it nonetheless. And then I went down to the Villa Balmiro and saw Santos play there in what I think I described as an incredibly quirky stadium. That's right in the middle of a neighborhood. That was a lot of fun. And then yesterday, actually, on Sunday, I went down to Porto Alegre for the match between Gremio and Corinthians, first and second in the table, uh, not respectively, Corinthians first, Gremio second, and that match was sold out, so I got to have the experience of having to buy a ticket from, they're called Cambistas here in Brazil, um, in the United States, we'd call them a scalper, uh, so I got to overpay for a ticket to go to a match, which is always fun. Uh, and then Palmetas to come. I think my best experience, it's always going to be seeing my own team, Palmetas, obviously. But beyond that, just getting to see all these different stadiums that, you know, I've watched matches on. You know, I obviously watch a lot of football. I listen to a lot of football. Um, but to see these places that I see on my screen when I'm streaming a match, to see those in person and to kind of finish painting the picture of what it is these venues are and what they're like has been really, really cool. The worst thing, nothing bad has happened to me at all. Uh, last night after the Gremio match, I had a bit of an experience trying to get back to where I was staying in Porto Alegre. Uh, no cabs were around. It, it, I basically spent an hour walking around the area around the stadium, walked a little bit too far, kind of got in an area alone, didn't feel unsafe at all, but it was like, all right, here I am. I'm an American trying to get home from a, a Gremio match in a country that's not my home country. Uh, I eventually did get home with a very strange and odd taxi ride that took me to places in Porto Alegre that I don't know taxis have ever been. I don't know. It was weird. Um, but I got home fine. It was not a big problem. But, it, you know, it's Brazil. Stuff like that kind of tends to happen. But it's it's been an incredible experience so far. And uh, I'm excited to close it out by seeing Palmeiras a couple more times. You mentioned there about being in the stadium and being able to sort of appreciate everything more by going to the stadiums. You know, we've all been in that position and situation. But is there a player who has stuck out more watching a match live there in the stadium rather than when you've had to watch games online or on TV? 
Yeah, a couple for me. Um, firstly, Yerry Mina for Palmatis. Uh, he's a player that we've profiled on the Scouting Spotlight podcast. He's a player that I've liked ever since he showed up at Palmatis. I knew that he was a physical force. I knew that he was a great center back. But my goodness, is he a monster. He just towers over everybody else. And I sat uh, behind the goal at the Palmatis match I went to against Atletico Goianiense. He towered over everybody else on the pitch. He's a good, you know, three to four inches taller than Palmatis' striker on the night, his fellow Colombian Miguel Borja. And he just composes himself and moves, you know, with a, a style and, and a grace that you don't often see from center backs. Um, he's incredible. And on, you know, when you're watching a match, you don't get to watch a player a lot of times off the ball. That kind of can tend to get lost because the camera obviously is following the ball. But with Mina, if you sit and you take three to five minutes to just watch him during the course of a match when he has the ball and when he doesn't, he's just a phenomenal center back. And I'm very, very glad that he's playing at my club currently. Another player was Diego Sosa for Sport, who I saw play Santos at the Villa Balmiro. Sport were 1-0 winners in that match. Uh, and Diego Sosa, not just the footballing aspect, but everything else. You know, wearing the captain's armband, being in every single conversation with the official, constantly moving towards the ball, you know, well aware of the fact that he's playing in this number 10 role where he has to go and meet the ball and and basically build any attack that Sport has, it's going to go through him. So to see his off-the-ball movement as well uh, was definitely impressive. Uh, Austin, tell me about, uh, you know, I went to Santos as well. It's, uh, it's a really nice small city by the coast, uh, you know, a few hours away from, from Sao Paulo. What was your experience there like? Because when I went, it was it was really striking to me to see the stadium, you know, going on the street and just come up along across the stadium, you know, the old white wooden outing. You know, what was your experience uh, there in Santos? Yeah, Santos was a really, really fun place to go. The stadium is, it's unlike anything I, I've really ever been to. Um, I'm trying to think of comparisons. There's a, a basketball arena in the United States that's kind of the closest thing that I, I've been to that's like it in that just kind of rises out of the residential neighborhood that it's in. And that's what the Villa Belmiro is like in Santos. Uh, going to Santos is, is always, is, was really interesting for me because the journey there is, intriguing as well i took a bus down from sao paulo and to go down the serra and just the road the way that it curves and the engineering feat that it was to build this elevated kind of viaduct that goes down a mountain was was really intriguing as well as i said the villa bomero it's it's right in the middle of a neighborhood they had x amount of space to build the stadium and they built a stadium and that's kind of what it feels like. Um, it's right in the middle of a neighborhood. The, the sections are all very weird. There's a bit of space behind the goal. There's really one big stand on one side and then the other side has three very small, like 10 row kind of sections, if you will. So there's the base section, which has like seven rows. The one above that has six, and then the one above that has like another 10-ish. Um, I was in the very bottom section, kind of close to the corner, sitting in the the about the sixth row. There's an overhang that is about just a touch taller than I am. So when I stood up, I was always scared I was going to hit my head. There's glass that separates that part of the field from the stands. The teams are in different 
obviously they're in different changing rooms, but they're in different parts of the stadium. So when they walk out before, they don't walk out together. Santos came out of one tunnel, Sport came out of another tunnel, and they met at midfield. It's just very quirky, I think is the best way to describe it. It it works, but it kind of doesn't, but it does. Uh, the, the sections behind the goals go straight up. There's not a lot of space in the visitor's stand. It was interesting for me because... When you see a match, you know, on camera, there's only so much that it can capture. And we kind of, I was kind of talking about that earlier. And the Villa Bomero is exactly like that. When you actually sit in the stand and you see it from that perspective and you see all of the intricacies in this stadium, it was really, really interesting. And it was a really fun place to watch a match. Uh, there were only 7,000 people there. Uh, it apparently seats 20,000, which I have a hard time believing because 7,000 and it felt fairly full to me, uh, assuming they probably just cram people in to the general admission, you know, standing sections behind the goals. Uh, it was just a really fun experience. Um, different, uh, you know, it wasn't cookie cutter. It wasn't, you know, a 30,000 seat stadium that is designed to look like every other 30,000 seat stadium. You know, every stadium is going to have its charm, but it certainly has felt like to me here in Brazil that even more so every stadium has its charm, especially the older ones. You know, the things that kind of of make it and the things that kind of set it apart as a stadium. So it was a really cool place to watch a match. It's a really, really interesting experience. Yeah. Now, when I was in uh, I was in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, I went to the Santos Stadium. I went to Sao Paulo and I went to Corinthians when they were playing at the municipal stadium. And um, for me, there was it, it has a huge impact on the the you know the atmosphere and the sound. I went to Sao Paulo when it was a it was a fairly full stadium, um, but because it's such a wide bowl, a lot of the sound goes straight up. So for me, when I was at the Sao Paulo game, there was some really impressive singing and some impressive um, you know fan displays and fan you know, animations. But I think the the stadium made it more difficult for the sound and the impact to stay within the ground. There were certain sections that seemed so far away. How has the different stadiums impacted upon the the feel and the sound? Obviously, you know, it's early, relatively early in the season, so I'm guessing the attendance hasn't always been massively high. But how has the stadiums affected that sound within the ground? Yeah, that's been really interesting as well. Um, Notice that definitely at the Modem B. Um, as you said, it's very far from the pitch. There weren't a lot of people there. The sound was pretty good in the Villa Belmiro, um, but the stadium that has had the best experience so far was the Arena do Gremio in Porto Alegre for Gremio Corinthians. As I said, first against second in the table. Um, completely to my surprise, this, the match sold out three days beforehand. Every other match that I've been to here in Brazil, you can walk up day of and buy tickets. They're generally a bit more expensive because the the, the cheaper sections do sell out earlier. Uh, but this match was completely sold out. No tickets left day of the game. So as I said, I had I had to buy secondary. Um, and it's a roof stadium in Gremio. The fans are fairly close to the pitch. And it was incredibly loud for the entirety of the match, pretty much. Uh, they also have a band there, something that they do not have in the Sao Paulo stadiums because just about everything has been banned um, from the stadiums in Sao Paulo by the military police. But in Gremio, they had a full instrumental band. Uh, and the noise was was deafening for the portions that Gremio were in the match, especially right before the match. It was awesome, and it just the crowd just kept building and building. Uh, Fifty four thousand was was the final number. Just about every seat was every seat was full except for some in the away section. 
Uh, and it was a really, really, really fun atmosphere, a lot of energy and a lot of noise. So the stadiums that have the roofs on them, uh, I think that helps. Um, that's Corinthians, Palmeiras, and the Gremio Stadium that I went to are stadiums that are at least partially enclosed. Palmeiras and Gremio, pretty much the entirety of the stands are covered. At Corinthians, it depends on the section that you're in. But that stadium is also built in such a way that the noise kind of does funnel onto itself. Corinthians was quite loud as well. Um, the Allianz Parque for Palmeiras was not quiet by any means either. Uh, but Corinthians, pretty much the whole stadium was full. Um, there was one section that they had not sold tickets in, like kind of half of a section. And then the most expensive section had a decent amount of empty seats. But other than that, it was full at Corinthians and it was quite loud. So... Yeah, it does depend on the stadium, but pretty much everywhere that I've gone, I've been impressed with the fans at. Uh, even 20,000 for a Sao Paulo match is not a bad number. Uh, that stadium is so, so large. 20,000 doesn't seem like a lot there, but it's a really good number for Brazilian football. So I've been very impressed by by the attendance at, at every match that I've gone to so far. I have to say that, yeah, I much prefer a traditional stadium like the one you've described so well there in Santos to kind of these new builds, which almost look like they've kind of been built from the same design guide, you know, like a flat pack stadium or something. But yeah, the main reason I prefer the traditional stadiums really is I feel that you can really kind of sense and, and almost touch the history in some of these older stadiums. They've got a real atmosphere about them as soon as you walk in. My experiences of following my team, Norwich, in, in England, I remember years ago going to Highbury and, and White Hart Lane and both those stadiums in North London. You could really sense the, you know, the history inside them. I had a real special feel to them. But when I went to the Emirates just last year, you know, that just felt such a soulless place. And, uh, and I'm a little bit concerned for Tottenham as well, moving into their new stadium, how that, how that will go. But, yeah, I, even here in South America, you know, I've been to many stadiums here in the La Bombonera in Buenos Aires. Obviously stands out that brilliant feeling of suddenly walking through a neighborhood and then this beautiful blue and yellow bowl stadium suddenly comes out of nowhere. And if you're lucky enough to get a ticket and get inside the stadium, then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an experience that you'll never forget. That stadium in a neighbourhood, which is all about the football club, just gives it that real sense of community. And these new builds tend to be sort of not in a neighbourhood, you know, slightly on the edge of town. And you don't quite get that full kind of immersive experience that these older stadiums provide. Um, I'm sure you've got a few experiences here in South America like that as well, Simon. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, many of the, the stadiums in Colombia are older. Um, I, I've never been to the Deportivo Cali Stadium. That would be interesting because that really does fit that, you know, it's uh, it's owned by the club and it's a bit further out of town. So it'd be interesting to see what that experience would be like. Um, but often, I mean, the stadiums in, in Colombia, there's, you know, there's a variety. There's there's the five or six huge teams that have their, their stadiums and their shared stadiums and they're very big. I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, in terms of the shape of the ground, it does make a massive difference. With Atletico Nacional, I'd been going every every week uh, in the south section of the stadium, which is like the hardcore fans even behind either goal. And then one week I couldn't get tickets, so I was in the, the, the main section of the ground. 
Uh, and I was so shocked at how quiet it felt in comparison. And it's relatively close. But whereas you can hear the stadium from, you know, uh, two neighborhoods away, when you're inside the stadium, because of it being very, very open, having an open roof, the sound did really leave the, leave the ground if you were in the main section, in the middle section, away from the hardcore fans. So that for me was a real, real big surprise and it did really impact on the, the experience. It was so impressive, but it wasn't as deafening and as you know, shaking your bones as it would be in the, the, you know, the more hardcore sections of the stadium. In terms of age, yeah, you know, it does definitely have a, an impact. And, you know, I went to the Bombonera as well, and it really is a special stadium. You know, I was walking around trying to find a ticket, and I felt a little bit unsafe. You know, it wasn't a game day. It was just people, uh, yeah, just, it's an interesting experience. But definitely, I think um, the history you can definitely feel uh, and the, the connection to the community is really important. Um, yeah, it definitely, definitely impacts upon your game day experience, having that, that build-up, having that connection, and having that history as well. I, yeah, I definitely think you can feel it as well. For sure. And Adam, you talk about that kind of touching history. The Pacambu is, is a lot like that as well here in Sao Paulo. It's the municipal stadium. Nobody is the permanent tenant there right now. Um, teams will generally play a couple matches there a year if there's scheduling conflicts. Uh, Palmeiras will be playing Gremio there next week because there's a concert scheduled at Palmeiras' stadium. Santos will play there a- as a decent a decent number of times because they do have a lot of fans in Sao Paulo and it's a bigger stadium than the Villa Belmiro. Uh, but the history at the Pac Imbu is great. And, and the fact that there's the Brazilian football museum is right there as well. Also, I think kind of helps that sort of feeling. And that's definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. You've got to say yeah. that on this podcast. Yeah. If you're ever in Sao Paulo, make sure you get to that football museum does a really, really good job of giving a, a very comprehensive look of, of football in Brazil. It's very well done. If you have kids, they'll enjoy it as well. There's a lot of kid-friendly parts. Um, the Museo de Pelé in uh, Santos as well, um, which just recently opened. I went when I was down there. A very good museum as well. Would highly recommend both of those. Um, the thing that I like the most about Palmeiras' stadium is it is brand new. Uh, it opened in 2014. But it was built at the same spot as their old stadium. And so it's in the Palmatis neighborhood. It's still exactly where the old stadium was. It's right by the club itself, you know, with all of the other stuff that the actual club has. And so I really enjoy that about it in that it doesn't feel like it's kind of out of the way. Um, both Gremio and Corinthians Stadium have a bit of that in that they're not necessarily next to where these clubs are based. The Gremio Stadium is is on the far north of Porto Alegre, kind of built in a, in the spot where they had space for it. Corinthians uh, in, in the east of Sao Paulo is kind of the same way. So I appreciate that about Palmeiras' stadium. But you're right, to be in these in these old these old houses of football and to know that you're in the same place where a lot of the legends that you hear about once played it's pretty cool. Uh, and that was what was fun about the Villa Belmiro for me is to think like all of the famous players who have played at Santos have played here and have played and it probably looked exactly like this. You know, maybe there wasn't the old time 1980s video board when Pelé was playing there. But other than that, the Villa Belmiro has not changed all that much in 40 years. And that's pretty cool. Okay, Austin. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And what's actually been happening on the field there? It looks like Corinthians are running away with the title at this stage. The only unbeaten team left in the top three divisions of Brazilian football. Corinthians, eight wins, two draws, no losses, 18 goals scored, just five conceded. 
it's not a star-studded team. There's not a lot of the players that, you know, catch the eye, at least from a, a European or Brazilian national team standpoint. This is a very well-drilled, well-oiled Corinthians machine. They know how they're going to play, and so far they've done that through 10 matches this year. Uh, Joe, the former Manchester City striker, has been phenomenal up top for them. He's kind of been the difference in class that they've needed. Jadson has returned in the midfield. But beyond those two, those are kind of their quote-unquote luxury players, if you will. It's a lot of hardworking, defensive-minded, hard-nosed players against Gremio at the weekend, who are in second place. They came into the match and knew exactly how they wanted to play. They wanted to slow it down. They wanted to frustrate Gremio and the fans. They wanted to frustrate me by their style of play in the crowd. Uh, and they did that. They did exactly that, and their game plan worked to perfection. They defended well for the first 45 minutes, and then they got a goal on a counterattack, a really, really great move going forward. Joe did well to dummy over a pass. He could have had a decent shot, left it for a great shot from Jadson, who put it through the legs of Marcelo Grovi, the Gremio keeper, and then they held on from there. Gremio missed a penalty, um, but other than that, you know, Corinthians stifled them. And this is a Gremio team that has one of the best attacks in South America, if not just Brazil, by far the most goals scored domestically. Uh, and Corinthians looked a different class. I don't know if they're good enough to just run away with the title, uh, but I do know that they're going to be hard to catch because they're not easy to beat. Now, they haven't been beaten yet. They're just a very, very good squad. Um, they're not a deep squad, but they're not going to need to be. They're not in the Libertadores. They're not in the Copa do Brasil anymore. They're in the Copa Sul-Americana. Um, they're not sending three players to Colombia for the first leg of that against Patriotas. I think they want to do well in that competition, but if it comes down to it, they have, I don't think Fabio Carilli and Corinthians will have any problems sacrificing the Sulamericana for the sake of the Brazil down. Uh, to win that, it would be another title for Corinthians. It would be their second in three years. And it would be incredibly impressive after the departure of Cheech and, and really the turning over of this squad. They're strong, they're defensive, and they're going to be hard to catch. I don't, I don't know if I'm willing to yet say that they're going to win the title. Uh, but I think they're going to be in it. And I think they've shown that with their first 10 matches. Beyond that, it's it's tight. Uh, Gremio sit four back of Corinthians. They're a really good squad. They've only lost twice this year. Once, they fielded a completely reserve 11. I think their eyes are on the Libertadores. We'll see how that affects them. They're going to field a reserve 11 against Palmeiras in the league this weekend. I don't know how many times they'll have to end up doing that. That could cost them. Uh, Flamengo, as we all know, are out of the Libertadores. They're in third, but they're already nine points back of Corinthians. A lot of talent in the squad, an incredibly deep squad with only two competitions. I guess they're still in the Sulamericana. So they do have three competitions to split them between. We'll see. Um, Palmeiras, Santos, Vasco, Botafogo, Fluminense, Coritiba, Cruzeiro, Ponte Preta, Atlético Paranaense, Chapecoense, Atlético Mineiro, all of those teams are within four points of third place Flamengo, and that goes all the way down to 14th. So the gap between third and 14th is four points. Um, so it's tight. It kind of always is in Brazil in the middle. It'll, it'll flesh out a little bit as we go on. I think some teams will drop. Some teams will also rise up a little bit more. Uh, it's been an interesting start to the league. As for teams that have struggled, I think it's Letico Mineiro might be chief among those. They're in 14th on 13 points. Got a big win at the weekend against Chapecoense. Atletico Mineiro fielded their reserve team with an eye towards the Copa do Brasil. Still got three points. 
they kind of needed that. Um, pretty good results now on the, on the run for Atletico Mineiro. So they look like they're kind of building back towards it. Sao Paulo are currently one spot out of the relegation zone. They're on 11 points. The, the most interesting question, I think, in this year's Brasilia Down is how much time will Rogério Ceni get? He's a club legend at Sao Paulo. Obviously, played his entire career there. Uh, played from 1992 until, you know, 2015 with Sao Paulo and is now manager in a country that is notoriously short-leashed with his managers. Sao Paulo have never been relegated. Uh, it's chief in their club anthem that they've never been relegated. So I don't think they want to be changing that or in one of the songs sung by the fans. So I'm very, very intrigued to see how much time he gets at Sao Paulo. A decent squad. Christian Cueva is a player I like. A lot of changes in the squad, though. They're losing pretty much both of their first choice defenders. Uh, they're bringing in a, a, what seems to be a fairly talented Ecuadorian defender, Arboleda. Uh, so a lot of changes. How much time will Senny get to mesh those in? I don't know. If it were any other manager, he would have been sacked by now. I don't think there's really any question about that. But he's a club legend, and, and it would be really difficult to do that. So that's something to watch for kind of at the bottom end of the table. How long do they stay in that area, and how long does Senny stay manager if they do? Excellent update, Austin. Um, let's move across to Simon in Colombia. There's plenty going on there at the moment. Um, last weekend, uh, saw the first tournament of the year come to a close, and it saw an epic comeback from Atletico Nacional in the two-legged final, no, Simon? Uh, it was Deportivo Cali against Atletico Nacional in the final. Uh, the first leg was played in, in Cali, uh, and it was so one-sided. You know, reigning Copa Libertadores champions should have been out of the tie completely. Uh, the game finished 2-0 to Cali. Goals from uh, Mera, who's on his way to Europe, a defender. And uh, Jefferson Duque, who's a very famous goal scorer in the Colombian League, uh, for the two goals for Deportivo Cali. Alexis Enriquez got sent off towards the end. Uh, deserved foul for a kind of frustrated elbow. Um, and honestly, Cali, if it wasn't for Franco Armani, who's a goalkeeper we've spoken a lot about on the podcast, the big, big fans of him, Cali would have won five or six nil and they, you know, would have had the tie wrapped up. So they finished the game against a very strong national side, winning two nil, but were disappointed and, and, you know, rightfully so, just in terms of the goals they should have scored. In that game, uh, Benedetti, who's a very talented 20 year old playmaker, uh, picked up a second, uh, picked up his fifth yellow card of the tournament. As did Orejuela, uh, a very nice, interesting 20-year-old defender as well. So two of the young stars of the Cali team were suspended for the second leg of the final. And actually, um, after the eventual defeat of Cali in the second leg, um, both of those players were, were were taken into hospital for you know um, signs of depression and you know emotional distress. So it really showed how much that impacted upon them and, and their frustration and not being able to be involved in in this big, big final here in Colombia. Um, in the second leg of the final, it was a completely different story. Uh, Nacional were incredibly strong and incredibly resilient at home. We've seen them last year in the Libertadores, games against teams like Rosario, where it looked as though, despite being strong, they were going out. And this, again, was a similar case. They ended up winning 5-1 <laughs> in the in the second leg uh, against Cali. Goals from Magdalena Torres. Mateus Oribe scored an excellent goal, probably one of the standout players of this year's tournament which is nice to see because he's one of those uh, Envigado talents who looked like he wasn't going to quite fulfill his potential, but went to Tolima was strong and has been excellent for Nacional in a variety of positions from fullback to attacking midfield to winger to defensive midfield. He's done a bit of everything. So one of the stars of the tournament. 
Uh, Ibarguin scored, Quinones scored, and Dairo Moreno scored a penalty, uh, which meant he scored 14 goals this tournament and finished as the top goal scorer. And he's actually finished top goal scorer in Colombia on five separate occasions uh, with three different teams, with Once Caldas, Millonarios, and now Nacional, in addition to being the all-time top goal scorer uh, for Tijuana in Mexico. So while I'm not convinced by Dero Moreno in some aspects, uh, you can't argue with his goal-scoring record is exceptional. Very, very talented technical player. Sometimes my concern is, what is he? Is he a 9? Is he a 10? Is he a winger? Yeah. But whatever he is, he's, he scores goals, so I can't knock him. So a resounding victory there for the Nacional in the end. Um, it looked like Kelly might come back into it after Jefferson Duque's goal. Uh, they were back in the tie uh, when it was to bring it 2-1. They were back in control. But yeah, Nacional at home are a, a very strong prospect and they really showed their experience and their big game experience seemed to be the difference. Uh, Deportivo Cali did have two players who've been playing on international duty. Um, which was unfortunate for them because the Colombian national team played some friendlies, some very impressive results, which was which was great to see. But they did select only players from Cali in the from, in terms of domestically based players. Abel Aguila uh, Vargas was selected, so that was unfortunate. Aguila only came on in the second leg, second half. So disappointing for Cali, but Nacional show why they're so dominant. You know, big games they get the results, and and they were very happy to do so. Uh, resoundingly uh, this week to pick up the the championship. Simon, that's really interesting about the national team call-ups. In Brazil, that can happen as well during the domestic league that, you know, players will get called up and will have to miss matches. But to miss a match of of that occasion for a domestic league call-up, especially when they were the only two players called up domestically, what was the reaction to that in Colombia? Was there a reaction? Uh, Was there anybody upset with Peckerman for doing that it's it's very very interesting you never obviously see anything like that happen in, in most places around the world yeah no absolutely and there, and there definitely was with Colombian football for many many years there's been uh, suggestions that let's go Nacional get their own way uh, especially you know previously the the sponsor of the league was Postabon a soft drinks company they also sponsored Nacional and there's a lot of questions you know in terms of the scheduling of games for for many fans of other teams they always said ah Nacional get the advantage and there was a, a big famous referee in Colombia who always seemed to referee the finals and he became a meme for a kind of national Nacional preference in terms of the organization so there was definitely, definitely frustrations. Guys like um, Fared Diaz, Magneli Torres for Nacional, maybe Juan Fernando Quintero for Medellin. You would expect these guys to be in and around the squad uh, usually. So it was very notable that they weren't included. And again, initially the thought was for me, oh, okay, well, you know, there's a still championship going on. They've not picked the players involved. And then you realize, but wait, they've picked these Cali players. <laughs> That's not very fair. And there definitely was a lot of frustration, a lot of, you know, a lot of eye rolling and shrugging and uh, typical look, national favoritism again so yeah it was unfortunate and I, and I think it was necessary I mean Abel Aguila is a, an important player for the Colombian national team but he's not you know he's not the be all and end all you know he's a reliable solid midfielder but they've got players who are arguably much better available uh, and these were two you know non-competitive friendlies treated very importantly by Colombia uh, very happy to get a good result in Spain and to win comfortably against Cameroon but these aren't tournament games. Nothing changes as a result of these games. So it hit Cali very hard and didn't really benefit Colombia massively. Yeah, it's certainly strange for me because here in Chile, when the national team plays, whether it's a competitive match or a friendly, the league stops. So that situation is impossible. Uh, but I do know that uh, 
like Austin says, you know, it happens in Brazil and I know it happens in Argentina as well. And it's, it's certainly a little bit bizarre. Anyway, let's move on, Simon, to talk about the Women's League final there, which proved to be a great success, no? With Santa Fe matching the achievement of the men's side decades ago by winning the inaugural championship. Yeah, no, incredible. This is, you know, the most important story of the year in many ways in Colombia. We don't cover a lot of women's football, but <laughs> the way the league has taken off, I'm, I'm maybe starting to think of switching to the Women's League to cover because... Yeah, incredible, incredible scenes. Basically, the, the the two-legged final was played this week. We're four or five months after the, the league was announced and launched. Colombia's never had this kind of national league. Um, and the final attracted the second leg of the final. Santa Fe uh, won the first leg away and, and had to finish it off at home. And there were 33,327 attendees, paying attendees, on a Saturday night for a women's game in Colombia put that in context the champions league in europe got twenty-two thousand, and you know in the u.s where many of us think of as the most you know developed part of the world for women's football there were eighteen thousand as the highest crowd in 2017 so miraculously incredibly colombia with a very underdeveloped women's game for many many years has has jumped to the front of world football in terms of uh, supporter engagement and in terms of development of the league and you know as a result of the popularity the league's already signed up to uh, for uh, live coverage for 80 or 80 or 90 percent of the games in Europe and in Asia uh, recently so women's football in Colombia is suddenly in a, in a matter of months a huge huge thing do you think Simon that that will have an effect on the types of players that are able to come in to play in Colombia especially you know foreign players um, it can be it can be difficult, obviously, for players to, to find somewhere to play and play and, and, and earn a, a good wage for women's players. Do you think that we'll see foreigners coming into that Colombian Women's League, particularly other South Americans? Definitely, definitely. And there's actually been players who've come from the U.S. to come and play. Santa Fe had some players from the U.S. Um, I think so far in the league, I mean, one of the key issues is that there's a big, big disparity between the strongest players and some of those who are perhaps making up the numbers to some extent. But everything has been done, has been done in the right way. For example, for the next year's Copa Libertadores, to enter the tournament, you have to have a women's team participating in the women's league. The league's going to be extended. They're going to have, I believe, 30, 30 teams participating next year, you know, in a more complete system. Um, Nacional, Medellin, Millonarios will be entering for the first time. They're looking for players. And this shows that if you have a decent team and if you have the opportunity to win things, the, the crowds are there. This is Bogotá. We were talking about the disappointing attendances for some of the games in the Libertadores uh, qualifying for, for Santa Fe. Uh, and we were discussing some of the challenges of you know a big city like Bogotá. Some of the transport's not ideal. It can be quite difficult to get to games. But for this game, you know, for a game where for a women's game, we had 33,000. So it shows the potential there. You know, for me, the most encouraging signs are the complete lack of cynicism and the complete lack of kind of sexist, dismissive, uh, kitchen comments, which sometimes you get, you know, you get a lot in England, I've really noticed. But here, people just saw it as, okay, so my team, Santa Fe, has got two clubs now. We've got the men's club and the women's club. Oh, cool. That's two, that's two games a week I get to attend. So just great, great news just in general. And I definitely think it's going to become uh, a center for South American women's football. It would be great for the national team in Colombia. But, for example, many, many Venezuelans have been playing in the league. Um, some people from the Caribbean, from Trinidad. You know, it's it's great. It's great for women's football and it's really, really great for Colombia. Basically, yeah, just the team suddenly said, we have two teams, not one team now. 
you know, in terms of social media, in terms of TV coverage, in terms of news reporting, everyone treated it the same as the men's league. Obviously, it doesn't have the same history and importance for many people, but the media and the clubs treated it as important. And obviously, with these kind of attendances, um, fans have gone, yeah, cool. So my local town has got a second team support. Brilliant. Perfect. So, yeah, excellent, excellent news for Colombia. I get the impression that the Santa Fe fans are especially proud of the fact that they can now boast that they've won, you know, the first championships in both men and women's football now. But. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a, it's these these historical landmarks are so important in in Colombia. Yeah, no, it's great, but it's it also shows how how serious people are taking it because they wouldn't celebrate a youth tournament. Or they wouldn't celebrate, you know, the fact that the women's triumph is considered by some to be on par is just. It's astounding. And again, for me, I'm so surprised, but I really shouldn't be. And it makes me realise the extent to, to which women's football can be dismissed in the mainstream in England. And, you know, why, why am I shocked that people care about women's football? You know, of course they of course they should. You know, these are really talented players uh, playing a, you know, a game we all love. So, yeah, for me, it's made me kind of reconsider, you know, what, what is considered acceptable in England. And why do we why do we take those assumptions or take those attitudes? So, yeah, it's just it's just nice to see. No, Simon, that's it's fantastic to see. Uh, I definitely agree with you that it's interesting how how women's football has has languished behind for so long, and obviously there's a lot of reasons for that. You could probably do you know more than just a segment on a podcast about that. Obviously, it's great to see how 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 good it's been in the United States as well, and hopefully those are those are trends that continue to get going. Adam, obviously, Chile in the Confederations Cup are now into the semifinals. A couple of decent performances, then maybe one that left a bit to be desired uh, in the final group stage match there. What have you made of, of what you've seen from the Chilean national team so far? And do you think they can finish the job and, and, and hoist the Confederations Cup as champions? Yeah, mixed mixed feeling so far. I think it's but think it's fair to say. Um, it's the 26th of June we're recording this show on. A year ago today, Chile had just beaten Argentina on penalties in the Copa America final uh, for the second year in a row to claim their second Copa America title. And a year on, I still have a lot of faith and belief in this Chile team. I, I think at times they have been, they have looked a little bit leggy. I think a lot of people have said that. I think we'll see whether that is the case or not in this semi-final against Portugal, especially as Portugal have a extra days rest um, heading into that one but I do wonder if it's just a case again of Juan Antonio PC managing to kind of conserve a little bit of energy because under San Paoli Chile always played at 100 miles per hour and you know they never they never stopped for 90 minutes and sometimes as as tournaments progressed um, or the year progressed they started to look very tired towards, towards the end um, where under PC rate they, they did seem full of energy as we reached the knockout stages in the Copa America Centenario last season. So I'm hoping, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, that it's going to be the same again in the Confederations Cup this year. The first match against Cameroon, I thought Chile had an excellent first half. They scored just on half time, but it was, of course, ruled out by the controversial video assistant referee, the VAR system, which really has been a kind of a the main talking point of this Confederations Cup, it seems, which is a real shame. I feel that it's taken away from some really entertaining matches that we've seen. But yeah, in that in that match against Cameroon, uh, Chile had a very luckluster kind of 
start to the second half until Sanchez came on and worked his magic and he set up both goals and Chile benefited from the VAR on the on the second one. That gave Chile a little bit of breathing space in their last two matches. I, I felt that they were really good against Germany. You know, a lot of people saying it's a Germany B-side, but I, th- I think we'll see a few of these Germany players in the World Cup squad next year. You know, it isn't their strongest team, but the bookies still had them favourites for that match against Chile. I think it's worth pointing out. I felt that Chile were the better side in the game. I felt that they had the better tactics. Um, fantastic pressing from Chile, especially in the first half. Yeah, it was that high pressing that led to the first goal as well. Nadal and Sanchez combining yet again. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic. Certainly at that point, I was quite confident that Chile could win it because I was looking at the other teams and I couldn't really see another team playing at that kind of level. But yeah, this last game against Australia certainly has me a little bit concerned. Australia played very, very aggressively in that first half and it really unsettled Chile, I think. Intimidated them a bit. I I did feel that maybe with a different referee, Australia may have even had a couple of red cards in that first half. I thought Chile rallied well in the second half. They could have been 2-0 down. They didn't. They hung in there and they got that all-important equaliser. They were only going to go out if Australia won by two goals. So they did have that little bit of breathing space there, luckily. But yeah, it, it wasn't the best performance and certainly not the kind of performance you want from your team just as they're about to take on the European champions and one of the best players in the world in Cristiano Ronaldo. Overall, I, I still have faith that, could, that Chile can do it. But yeah, like I say, little concerned about the energy levels of this Chile team. But I'm hoping I'm wrong on that, like I was last year in the Copa America Centenario, and PC and the boys proved me wrong. I was just about to, to bring up that point that it's not like Chile have don't have experience struggling in a group stage at points and still winning the competition. It's crazy to think that, as you said a year ago, at the end of the group stage, Chile did not look like they would be winning that competition. And then they did. So I think there's still reason to be confident in that side. Yeah, definitely. And even two years ago, you know, their worst performance in the 2015 Copa America came in the group stage at home, obviously at home because the tournament was at home. But um, against Mexico, it was a 3-3 draw and that was like a Mexico B side as well. And at that point, everybody was panicking. You know, Chile after that, you know, they comfortably beat Bolivia. They they grounded out a win over Uruguay, deservedly so. And uh, then beat Peru in the semifinals. And then obviously beat Argentina on penalties. And, and last year, you know, struggling in the group stages, just about got through against Panama in the, in the last group game with a 4-2 win and then went on and, and smashed Mexico for seven in the, in the quarterfinal and then a fairly comfortable win over Colombia in the semifinals and then an even more impressive in some ways win in the final against Argentina again on penalties. So, yeah, I, I, think, there's, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about still, despite the dodgy performance against Australia. I think that's enough about Chile. <laughs> I'm just hoping that Cristiano Ronaldo has has a bad day at the office. Okay, finally on the show today, I chatted to Tom Robinson about Boca Juniors winning their 32nd title 
and a roundup of the relegation and promotion race too. Hello, Tom. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Um, I've uh, got a couple of weeks holiday over here in England at the moment, so going to be going around Europe a bit. So looking forward to that now that now that all the football's well and truly wrapped up um, in Argentina. Yeah, let, let's get chatting about the latest happenings in Argentina. So tell us about Boca Juniors and their and their triumph. As you mentioned, it was the uh, 32nd uh, league title for Boca and the first um, um, as a manager for Guillermo Barros Equiloto. Um, he won absolutely loads as a player. I think he might have been the most winningest, to use an American term, uh, player in Boca's history. So he's brought more silverware to the club. To be honest, it wasn't the most spectacular title win for Boca. They did score more goals than anyone else and had a better goal difference by well over 10, I think. And they kind of, you know, they, they were top of the table from, I think, about the 13th round onwards. And from there, they never really let it slip. But it, was, it wasn't as dominant as the league table might suggest. They were good, but they, they, they benefited a lot from their opponents slipping up at crucial moments. You know, Newells were right up there challenging with them for a long way, but they dropped like a stone from from the start of May, finished right down the table potentially in, in about eighth or ninth. You know, you had Libert- uh, Libertadores distractions for San Lorenzo, River, Lanús that kind of kept them with one eye on the Continental Tournament. Independiente and Racing both both started relatively poorly, had very good second half of the seasons, and Banfield were in there surprisingly as well. But yeah, Boca just kept kept doing doing their thing. You know, they had a the, the classic four three three formation that uh, Esquiloto really really likes to play with lots of width coming from the fullbacks, and they had a really good front three basically of Ricky Centurion, who's a really tricky, creative wide midfielder forward on on the left usually. Um, and then Dario Benedetto, he, he scored 21 goals. He was the top goal scorer in the league. In the middle, Christian Pavon on the on the right, who's a very pacey, direct, um, sort of inverted winger forward, um, who got nine goals and nine assists. So those guys were sort of really key, especially after Tevez left um, to go off to China. And um, I think the other the other player who really stood out for me as well was uh, Fernando Gago. He might not be at the level that we we expected him to reach, but for the Argentinian league when he's fit he's a really important player so kind of an expected title win you know it seemed like it would, it was going to be Bocca's for for a while now apart from a late surge from River especially after their Super Classico win they held on and you know they I think they they actually were confirmed champions just before their penultimate game against Olimpo when um when Banfield uh failed to failed to win against uh, San Lorenzo so yeah um not the most dramatic end another another title for Bocca yeah, a bit, bit of an anti-climax to their title win, really, isn't it? When you when you win the title without actually being on the pitch. So we're going to see Boca Juniors in the 2018 Copa Libertadores, which should be interesting. Who is joining them? Well, at the moment, it's um, quite quite up in the air, really. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Tevez coming back. I know he's only been out in China for about six months, but there's there's a lot of um, speculation that he might be back. Um, in time for their Libertadores campaign next year. That would um, therefore impact on a lot of the other signings they've made. Um, it looks like Benedetto's probably going to be off to Sevilla or somewhere in Europe for sure. Um, and Pavon has regularly been linked with some clubs in Europe. I think PSG were heavily linked with him uh, in January. So it's going to be interesting to see more who they who they lose. 
And then from that, they'll probably we'll, we'll see who they bring in. They're a big name. They should be able to recruit plenty of plenty of good players. But they're yeah, joining Boca in in the Libertadores next year. Um, you've definitely got River, um, who finished second. Um, I mean, they could still technically finish third, um, but that would require Estudiantes to win by about six goals um, tonight. At the moment, there is there are still a few places yet to be decided. Um, currently, at the time of recording, we've got Racing in third and Banfield uh, in fourth with Estudiantes in fifth. There's still three games uh, involving some of those teams that could sneak into the Libertadores. Uh, Estudiantes still to play, Independiente and San Lorenzo. Now, if any of those guys win, they're going to uh, um, leapfrog Racing and Banfield. It's, yeah, it's a bit of an, this is probably the most exciting thing left going on in the season because if any of those teams slip up or fail to win then that can uh, that's good for Racing that uh, gives them a better chance of making the Libertadores Banfield are probably now they're kind of looking quite unlikely of making it um, after sort of surprising everyone and almost being the only side that could have challenged Boca right at the end um, but yeah you've got Estudiantes are playing Quilmes, who are one of the worst teams in the league and have already been relegated. Um, Independiente have got Lanús, which will be a, a tough game. And San Lorenzo away at Tajeres, uh, um, who, who, again, have had a very good season since coming up. So it looks like Estudiantes should definitely confirm their place. You know, they just need a draw, really, to finish above Banfield. But all three of those will be gunning for a, a victory. So I, if I had to put my neck on the line, I'd, I'd say... The way that Independiente are playing right now, they should be able to get a, a win against Lanús. Yeah, I think we might see Banfield uh, miss out and maybe Racing just sneaking in as as the fifth team. Um, Estudiantes should be able to get at least a draw to keep them up. So yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, still still got to wait on a couple of results there, but it's uh, it's proving to be interesting. And finally, let's just have a quick word about the relegation and promotion race. Who is who is coming up and who is going down? Uh, in Argentina, we've got the the relegation system, which is based on the points average of the last few tournaments. So this year, I mean, some of the some of the really bad teams have gone down. Um, so we've got Sarmiento, who although they finished twenty sixth out of thirtieth, they they were they were bottom of the um, promedio. Um, Quilmes, who, who were absolutely terrible, Aldo Civi, who were who were also really really bad, and I think the, the one team that could probably count themselves a bit unlucky is Atletico Rafaela, who sort of had a really good second half of the season and end up finishing 17th, so almost mid-table. But yeah, they they uh, had some pretty terrible uh, years gone by and, and they were pretty much doomed. Um, a few teams sort of just snuck out of there, like Olimpo had a very good season and that kind of jumped them ahead of a few teams. Also... Tempele were were close to going down. Huracan were 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 pretty bad, and you know they're fortunate that some worse teams there, and even Arsenal, who you know have been pretty terrible ever since uh, Grondona died, which I'm sure there's there's no correlation to that. Yeah, coming up we've got definitely Argentinos Juniors under the management of Gabriel Ainsley, um, who have just absolutely smashing the uh, Nacional. There's still a few games to be uh, to go there, so we've still got. Um, a couple of teams vying for that second spot. You know, they're, they're currently trying to reduce the Primera from the absolutely ridiculous 30-team league. Um, so four are going down, two are going up. And the, the second place in the, in the Nacional B 
looks like it's going to be between Guillermo Brown of Puerto Madryn and Chacarita Juniors. You know, Chacarita probably the 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 more established um, side, and they're, they're on some pretty good form now. Guillermo Brown sort of started very well, but have, have fallen off quite a lot. So I'd, I'd probably say Chacarita should sneak in, but maybe we'll see Guillermo Brown, which would be an interesting new name in the Primera. But yeah, I think Argentinos Juniors could be could be one to watch out for next season. Uh, you know a great history of producing young players and um, Einzer's uh, doing well over there. Okay, Tom, yeah, great stuff as always. Thanks for coming on the show today. Have you got anything to plug at the moment? At the moment, I've got a few scouting reports um, over on ESDF analysis. Uh, you know, some of the pod favourites of Angel Herrera, uh, Sebastian Driussi, who's just uh, completed a move to Zenit St. Petersburg. And then obviously the wfi scouting spotlight pods as well there's there's about four up there at the moment i believe and and hopefully some more coming away when uh when uh austin's back from brazil so yeah i mean just keep keep following um on uh, twitter at tomro89 and uh most of my stuff will be on there probably some end of season reviews of the argentinian league as well so yeah lots going on excellent insight as always so i think that wraps us up for today um austin first of all do you have anything to plug nothing to plug uh just follow me on twitter at austin underscore james 906 um tweeting a lot less because i'm at matches and not watching them and i'm not going to spend the time tweeting about the matches if i'm there but a lot of pictures and videos so i think it's a bit more fun to be following me right now uh regular service will resume when the libertadores gets back underway there'll be plenty of tweets about that um but it's been a great time here in brazil i really enjoyed it and i'm looking forward to these final couple days here to get into a couple more matches and cheering on my palmetto side and simon yeah so on twitter at simon edwards saf um lots of colombian transfer news updates on there at the moment so check it out if you want to find out who's coming and going in colombia and colombians in europe uh yeah just upsetting some junior fans (laughs) some of my tweets so just go over there and uh, let me know i'm hoping to do something on the colombian uh football uh success soon uh you can hear i'm quite passionate about that so looking forward to getting into that a bit more and reviewing what's happened and and why it's been so successful so that should be coming up and uh adam what about you twitter yeah, um, you can find me at a new Twitter handle, um, Adam Brandon 84 The Kanija Scores handle was finally dumped. It, it upset too many Chileans, but I had an Argentinian player in my uh, Twitter handle. So, so there you go. Um, Adam Brandon 84 is, is, is where you can find me these days. I think that's all for today. So it's just left for me to say a massive thanks as always to Austin and Simon for giving up their time to come on and, uh, and give us their excellent insight as always. And also a huge thanks to our listeners here at the World Football Index. Um, you know, we couldn't do these shows without you. So thank you and goodbye. <laughs>